It took time. There was a groove in the rock that had to be scraped out, and tree trunks to be dragged into position to stop the door from falling outward as it moved. The sun was starting to fall down the sky by the time Milo stepped up to the stone with a six-foot bar of steel in his hand. Mao looked at it glumly. It was useful, and he was glad to have it, but it was a trouserman thing, another present from the sweet Judy. They were still stripping her like termites. Even a canoe had a soul of a kind. Everyone knew that. Sometimes it wasn't a good soul, and the craft was hard to handle, even though it seemed to be well built. If you were lucky, you got a canoe with a good soul, like the one he'd built on the boy's island, which always seemed to know what he wanted. The sweet Judy had a good soul, he could tell. It was a shame to break her up, and another kind of shame to know that, once again, they had to rely on the Chowsermen to get things done. He was almost ashamed of carrying one of the smaller crowbars himself, but they were so useful. Who but the Chowsermen had so much metal that they could afford to make sticks out of it? But the bars were wonderful. They opened anything. "'There may be a curse on the door,' said Ataba behind Mao. "'Can you tell if there is?' "'No, but this is wrong. "'These are my ancestors. "'I seek their guidance. "'Why should they curse me? "'Why should I fear their old bones? "'Why are you afraid? "'What is in the dark should be left alone?' "'The priest sighed. "'But no one listens to me now. "'The coral is full of white stones, people say, "'so which ones are holy?' "'Well, which?' "'The three old ones, of course.' "'You could test them,' said Daphne, without thinking. "'People could leave a fish on a new stone "'and see how their fortune changes. "'Hmm. I'd need to work out a scientific way.' "'She stopped, aware that everyone was watching her. "'Well, it would be interesting,' she finished lamely. "'I did not understand any of that,' said Ataba, looking coldly at her. "'I did.' Mao craned to see who had spoken, and saw the tall, skinny figure of Tom Ali, a canoe-builder who had arrived with two children who were not his, one boy and one girl. "'Speak, Mr. Tom Ali,' he said. "'I would like to ask the gods why my wife and son died, and I did not.' There was some murmuring from the crowd. Mao already knew him. He knew all the newcomers. They walked the same way, slowly. Some just sat and watched the sea, and there was a greyness about them all. Why am I here, their faces said. Why me? Was I a bad person? Tom Ali was repairing the canoes now, with the boy helping him, while the girl helped out in the place. Some of the children were coping better than the adults. After the wave, you just found a place that fitted. But Tom Ali had said what a lot of people didn't want to hear said, and the best thing to do was to give them something else to think about right now. We all want answers today, Mao said. Please, all of you, help me move the stone. No one else has to set foot inside. I will go in by myself. Perhaps I'll find the truth. No, said Ataba firmly. Let us go in there together and find the truth. Fine, said Mao. That way we can find twice as much. Ataba stood next to Mao as the men took up their positions. You say you are not frightened. Well, I am frightened, young man, to my very toes. The truth will be the dead men in there, that's all, said Mao. Dried up. Dust. If you want to be frightened, think about the raiders. Do not dismiss the past so lightly, demon boy. It may still teach you something. Milo forced the bar between the rock and the stone, and heaved. The stone creaked and moved an inch. They did it carefully and slowly, because it would certainly crush anybody it fell on. But cleaning out the groove had been a good idea. 
The stone ran smoothly until half of the cave entrance could be seen. Mao looked inside. There was nothing there. He'd imagined all kinds of things, but not nothing. The floor was quite smooth. There was a bit of dust on the floor, and a few beetles scuttled off into the dark. And that was all the cave held, except depth. Why had he expected bones to fall out when the door was opened? Why should it be full up? He picked up a piece of rock and threw it into the darkness as hard as he could. It seemed to bounce and rattle for a long time. All right, he said, and the cave threw his voice back at him. We're going to need those lamps, Daphne. She stood up with one of the sweet Judy's lamps in each hand. One red one and one green one, she said. The spare port and starboard lights. Sorry about that, but we haven't got very many cabin lamps left and we're short of oil. What about that white lamp next to you? asked Mao. Yes, that's the one I'm going to bring, said the ghost girl. And to save time, shall we pretend we've had the argument and I won? More trouserman things, Mao thought as he picked up his lamp. I wonder what we used to use. The low ceiling told him when he touched it. His fingers came away covered in soot. Torches, then. You could make decent ones out of hog fat. If there was enough of the stuff to spare, they were good for night fishing, because the fish would rise to the light. We've been living off fish and the sweet Judy's salt-pickled beef, because that's easy, he thought. So now we'll have to find our dead by trouserman lamplight. Chapter 10. Believing is Seeing The cave was waiting. It might contain anything, Mao thought. And that was the point, wasn't it? You had to find out. You had to know. And Daphne didn't seem concerned. Mao told her that there would probably be bones, and she said that was fine, because bones didn't try to kill you, and that since she had got the message from the grandmothers, she was going to see it through, thank you so very much. They found the grandfathers right at the point where you could just see the waning daylight, and Mao began to understand. They weren't scary, they were just sad. Some of them still sat as they had been put, with their knees up under their chins, staring toward the distant light with flat, dead eyes. They were just husks and crumbled bones. If you looked carefully, you could see that they had been held together with paper vine. It really did have many uses, even after death. They stopped when the daylight was a little dot at the end of the tunnel. How many more can there be? Ataba wondered. I'm counting, said Mao. There's more than a hundred of them so far. One hundred and two, said Daphne. There seemed to be no end to them, sitting one behind the other like the world's oldest rowing crew, sculling into eternity. Some of them still had their spears or clubs tied to their arms. They went on, and the light vanished. The dead passed in their hundreds, and Daphne lost count. She kept reminding herself how scared she wasn't. After all, hadn't she quite enjoyed that lecture on anatomy she'd attended, even though she had kept her eyes shut throughout? However, if you were going to look at hundreds and thousands of dead men, it didn't help to see the light from Ataba's lamp flicker over them. It seemed to make them move, and they had been men of the islands. She could see, on ancient leathery skin, blurred tattoos, like the ones every man, well, every man except Mao, wore even now. A wave, curling across the face of the setting sun. "'How long have you been putting people in here?' she asked. "'Forever,' said Mao, running on ahead. "'And they came from the other islands, too.' "'Are you tired, sir?' said Daphne to Ataba when they were left alone. "'Not at all, girl. Your breathing does not sound good. "'That is my affair. It is not yours. "'I was just concerned, that's all. "'I would be obliged if you would stop being concerned,' Ataba snapped. "'I know what is happening. "'It starts with knives and cooking pots. 
and suddenly we belong to the trouser men, yes? And you send priests and our souls do not belong to us. I'm not going to do anything like that. And when your father comes in his big boat, what will happen to us then? I don't know, said Daphne, which was better than telling the truth. We do tend to stick flags in places, she had to admit it herself. We do it almost absent-mindedly, as though it's a sort of chore. Ah, you fall silent, said the priest. You are a good child, the women say, and you do good things. But the difference between the trouser men and the raiders is that sooner or later the cannibals go away. That's a terrible thing to say, said Daphne hotly. We don't eat people. There are different ways to eat people, girl, and you are clever. Oh, yes, clever enough to know it. And sometimes the people don't realise it's happened until they hear the belch. Come quickly. That was Mao, whose lamp was a faint green glow in the distance. Daphne ran to stop a Taba from seeing her face. Her father, well, he was a decent man, but, well, this century was a game of empires, apparently, and no little island was allowed to belong to itself. What would Mao do if someone stuck a flag on his beach? There he was now, looking green and pointing to the line of grandfathers. As she got closer, she saw the white stone on the edge of the passage. There was a grandfather sitting on it like a chieftain, but with his hands clasped around his knees like the rest. And he was facing down the corridor, away from the cave mouth, toward the unknown. In front of him, the line of dead warriors continued, all now turned to face... what? The light of day was behind them now. Mao was waiting, a glint in his eye, when Ataba hobbled up. "'Do you know why they are facing the wrong way, Ataba?' he asked. "'They look as though they are protecting us from something,' said the priest. "'Down here? From what? There's nothing down here but darkness. "'And something best forgotten, perhaps. "'Do you think the wave never happened before? "'And the last time it never went away. "'It was a wave that never ebbed. "'It ended the world.' "'That's just a story. "'I remember my mother telling it to me,' said Mao. "'Everyone knows it. "'In the time when things were otherwise and the moon was different, "'men were becoming troublesome, "'and so Emo swept them away with a great wave.' "'Was there an ark?' "'I mean, uh, some sort of big boat?' asked Daphne. "'I mean, how did anyone survive?' "'There were people on the sea and high ground,' said Mao. "'That's the story, isn't it, Ataba?' "'What had they done that was so bad?' Daphne asked. Ataba cleared his throat. "'It is said they tried to make themselves into gods,' he said. "'That's right,' Mao went on. "'I wonder if you can tell me what we did wrong this time?' Ataba hesitated. Mao did not, and he spoke sharp and fast like a spring unwinding. I'm talking about my father, my mother, my whole family, my whole nation. They all died. I had a sister who was seven years old. Just give me the reason. There must have been a reason. Why did the gods let them die? I found a little baby stuck in a tree. How had it offended the gods? We are small. We cannot understand the nature of the gods, said Ataba. No, you don't believe that. I can hear it in your voice. I don't understand the nature of a bird, but I can watch it and listen to it and learn about it. Don't you do this with the gods? Where are the rules? What did we do wrong? Tell me. I don't know. Don't you think I haven't asked them? Tears started to roll down Ataba's cheeks. You think I am a man alone? I haven't seen my daughter or her children since the wave. You hear what I say? It is not all about you. I envy your rage, demon boy. It fills you up. It feeds you, gives you strength. But the rest of us, 
listen for the certainty, and there is nothing. Yet in our heads we know that there must be something, some reason, some pattern, some order, and so we call upon the silent gods because they are better than the darkness. That is it, boy. I have no answers for you. Then I'll look for them in the darkness, said Mao, holding up the lantern. Come farther with us, he said in a quieter voice. The light glistened off the tears streaming down the priest's face. No, he said hoarsely. We'll have to leave you here, said Mao, among the dead men, which I think is no place for you. Or you can come with us. At least you'll have a demon and a ghost on your side. We may need your wisdom, too. To Daphne's surprise, the old man smiled. You think I have some left? Certainly. Shall we continue? What can you find that is worse than me? I'd like to ask a question, said Daphne quickly. How often is a new grandfather put in here, please? Once or twice in fifty years, said Ataba. There are thousands here. Are you sure? This place has been here since the world was made, and so have we, said Mao. On that at least we are in full agreement, said Ataba stoutly. But that's a very long time ago. And that is why there are so many grandfathers, said Mao. It's very simple. Yes, said Daphne. When you put it like that, I suppose it is. They set off, and then she said, What was that noise? They stopped, and this time they all heard the faint crackling and rustling from behind them. Are the dead rising? asked Ataba. You know, I really hoped nobody was going to suggest that, said Daphne. Mao walked a few steps back along the cave, which was full of tiny crackling sounds. The dead don't walk, he thought. That's one of the ways you know they're dead. So what I'm doing is standing here, a long way from the sky, and I have to work out what they are doing. So what is the reason? And where have I heard this noise before? He walked a little way farther up the tunnel, where there was no noise at all, and waited. After a while, the crackling started again, and he thought of sunshine on hot days. It was crackling where he had left the others, too. Let's keep going, he said, and it will stop, provided we keep moving. They won't wake up, said Ataba. It's the paper vine bindings on the grandfathers, Mao said. Even when it's bone dry, it crackles and pops when it's warmed up. The heat of the lamps in our bodies sets it off, if we stay in one place too long. That's all it is. Well, it was frightening me, said Daphne. Well done. Deductive reasoning based on observation and experiment. Mao ignored that, because he didn't have the faintest idea what it meant. But he felt pleased. The grandfathers didn't wake up. The noise he had heard as a boy was just paper vine getting hotter or colder. That was true, and he could prove it. It wasn't hard to work out. So why is it all I can do not to wet myself? because paper vine moving doesn't sound interesting, and walking skeletons does. That's why. Somehow they make us feel more important. Even our fears make us feel important, because we fear that we might not be. He watched Ataba move close to a grandfather, and then step back hurriedly when it began to creak. My body is a coward, but I am not fearful. I will fear nothing, ever, he thought. Not now. There was a glow ahead. It appeared suddenly as they walked around a long curve, red, yellow, and green, flickering as they got closer. Ataba groaned and stopped walking, and because he did that, Mao knew he couldn't. He looked down the slope ahead. "'Stay and look after the old man,' he said to the ghost girl. "'I don't want him to run away.' 
I will not fear my bladder that wants to explode, he told himself as he sped down past the silent sentries, or my feet that want to turn and flee, and I will not fear the pictures that are running, screaming through my head. He ran on, the light racing ahead of him, repeating the vow until, like Captain Roberts, he found it necessary to change the words in a hurry. I will not fear the shadow that is walking out of the pretty light, because I have found my fear down here in the dark, and I shall reach out and touch him as he reaches out to touch me. His fingers met his reflection and touched smooth golden metal in a slab about the size of a man. Mao put his ear to it, but there was no sound. When he pushed it, it didn't move. I want you to stay where you are, he told the others when they caught up to him, both of you. We've come down a long way. There may be water on the other side of this. He prodded at the metal with his crowbar. It was very soft and also very thick, but the stone around it was the ordinary island stone, and that seemed a better bet. It soon started to flake away under blows from the pointed end of the bar, and after some work there was a hiss and the smell of wet salt. So the sea was somewhere near, but at least they were above it. He called the others down and hacked at the stone again, amazed at how easily he could crack it with the metal bar, opening up a gap into blackness. It was damp. He could hear a soft lapping of water in the dark. By the light of the lamp, he could just make out some white steps leading down. So that was it, all this way for some sea cave. There were a lot of them at the bottom of the cliffs on the western side of the island. Kids had explored them since time began and had never found anything to get excited about. But the lamplight glinted on something in the dark. I'm going to come in with you, said Daphne behind him. No, stay here. It might be dangerous. Yes, and that's why I ought to go in with you. It's been shut up since forever. What's going to hurt me? What? You were the one who said it might be dangerous, Daphne said. I will enter first, said Ataba behind her. If Lokaha is in there, I will take his hand. I'm not going to wait out here with all these dead men crackling at me, Daphne protested. Yes, I know it's just the vines, but that really doesn't help. The three of them looked at one another in the lamplight, and then, as one, tried to get through the narrow gap into a space full of bad air. It tasted rotten, if air could rot. The steps beyond were godstones, every one. They had carvings on them, just like the ones on the beach, but many of the carvings went across several stones. Here and there, stones were cracked or missing. Lumps of stone, thought Mao. Why did we think they were worthy things to worship? He held the lamp higher and saw the reason. Ahead of him, knee-deep in the water, gigantic and gleaming white and sparkling all over, were the gods. The huge stomached air with his four sons on his shoulders, the brilliant water, the ferocious fire, with his hands bound to his side, just as the story said. Air and water each held a big stone globe in their hands, but fire's globe was balanced on his head and had a red glitter to it. There was a fourth statue, pale and smashed, with no head and one arm fallen down into the water. For a moment Mao thought, That's Emo, broken. Would I dare to find his face? Ataba screamed, and outside in the tunnel a dead man moved slightly. Do you see them? Do you see them? the priest managed, in between great gasps of sour air. Behold the gods, demon boy! He bent double with a fit of coughing. It definitely was not good air. You sucked it down, but there was no life in it. Yes, I see them, said Mao. Gods of stone, Ataba. Why should they be of flesh? And what stone shines like that? I am right, demon boy, and my faith I am right. You can't deny it. I can't deny what I see, but I can question what it is, said Mao, as the old man wheezed again. 
Mao looked across the darkness to the glow of light that was Daphne's lantern. Let's get back right now, he shouted. Come on, even the flames are choking. Those are just statues, Daphne called back. But this, this is amazing. There was the grinding noise of stone moving from somewhere near her. Ataba was wheezing horribly. It sounded as though every breath was being sawn out of a tree. Mao looked at the flickering flame of his lantern and yelled, We must get back. And there's a skeleton here, Daphne called out. And he's got... I don't believe this. Oh, you must see this. You must see what he's got in his mouth. Do you want to run back up the tunnel in the dark? He shouted as loudly as he could, and outside in the corridor a grandfather shifted. That seemed to do it. He saw her lamp begin to move toward the door. She was panting when she reached him, and the light was a dark orange. You know, I thought all this could be Greek, she said, or Egyptian, that we trousermen, well, togamen, I suppose. So we even begged our gods from your people too, snapped Mao, putting an arm around the priest's shoulders. What? No, it's more. Mao pulled her after him through the narrow gap. No more talking, he said. Now come on. The on echoed up and down the corridor. The ancient and oldest grandfather beside Mao fell over backward with a little click and then crumbled into powder and strips of dry paper vine, but not before it had tipped over the one behind it. They watched in horror as the line of toppling, crumbling grandfathers overtook the lamplight, filling the air with cloying, acrid dust. They looked at one another and made an immediate and group decision. Run! Dragging the stumbling old man between them, they dashed up the gentle slope. The dust stung their eyes and clawed at their throats, but around the fortieth collapsing skeleton they overtook the cascading bones. They didn't bother to stop. The dust behind them was almost a solid billowing mass, as keen to escape as they were, and they ran on into better air until the noise died away. Daphne was surprised when Mao slowed down, but he pointed to the white stone that stuck out of the wall with the hunched grandfather on it. "'We can rest for a moment,' he said. "'That one's too high to be pushed over.' He propped up Ataba, whose breathing almost rattled, but the priest was smiling even so. "'I saw the gods,' he panted, "'and you did too, Mao.' "'Thank you,' said Mao. Ataba looked puzzled. "'For what?' "'Not calling me demon boy.' "'Ah, I can be generous in victory.' "'They were made of stone,' said Mao. "'Magic stone, the milk of the world. "'Have you ever seen so much of it? "'What human hand could carve it? "'What mind could imagine them?' They are a sign. In the heart of darkness I have found illumination. I was right. They were stone, said Mao patiently. Did you not see the slabs on the floor? There are your godstones. They were made to tread on. They fell into the sea, and you think they are holy. A man in darkness may be misled, it's true. But in the stones we saw a hint of the truth. The gods made you their tool, boy. You scorned them and spurned them. But the faster you ran from them, the closer you came to them. You— We ought to move, said Daphne, to a distant background of crushing bones. Even if they can't get closer, that dust can. Move, I said. They obeyed, as wise men do when a woman puts her foot down, and went on along the tunnel at the best speed that a tarba could hobble. But Daphne hesitated. The crashing tide of grandfathers was nearly at the stone, and, yes, it should be able to stop them. But Mao had sounded too confident, which to her mind meant that even he was not all that certain. He didn't need to stop, but Ataba was suffering. He actually cares about the old man, she thought. A demon wouldn't crash. The tumbling bones hit the stone and stopped. At least, 
all but one did. It was probably a rib, she thought later. It sprang out of the mess and into the air like a salmon, and hit the skull of the grandfather who was perched on the stone. He rocked backward and fell onto the skeleton on the other side of the stone, which fell over. And that was it, like a trick with dominoes. Crash, crash, crash. The floor was more level here, and the bones rolled faster. Why hadn't she been expecting something like this? The grandfathers had been stuck in this mouldy cave forever. They wanted to get out. She ran after the men before the dust rose. She'd heard that when you took a breath, you breathed in a tiny, tiny amount of everyone who had ever lived, but, she decided, there was no need to do it all at once. Run again! she yelled. They were already turning to look. Daphne grabbed the old man's other arm and used him to tow Mao until they had got all six legs sorted out. The entrance was a little white dot again, a long way off, and after only a few steps, Ataba was groaning. "'Leave the lamps here,' panted Mao. "'We don't need them now. I'm going to carry him.' He scooped up the priest and slung him over his back. They ran. The dot didn't seem to get bigger. No one looked back. There was no point. All you could do was face the speck of day and run until your legs screamed. They only looked at the god statues, thought Daphne, trying to keep her mind off what was crashing down behind them. They should have looked at the walls, but of course they wouldn't have known what they were looking at. It's lucky I'm here, in a way. Something crunched under her foot. She risked a quick glance down and saw little bits of bone bouncing along, overtaking her. They're right behind us. I know, said Mao. Run faster. I can't. The dust is going to get me. Does not happen. Give me your hand. Mao shifted the weight of the old priest on his back and grabbed her hand, almost jerking her off her feet. Mao's legs were pounding across the rock as if driven by steam. All she could do was kick at the ground whenever it came near to stop herself being dragged along it. Now the circle of daylight was getting closer, and after having been so tiny for so long, it was opening fast. The ancient dust, which stung the skin and choked the throat, ran ahead of them across the ceiling, cutting out the daylight. They burst into evening sunlight, suddenly and intensely bright after the gloom of the tunnel. It dazzled the eyes, and Daphne felt herself begin to stumble into the sea of white that had taken the place of the world. Mao must have been blinded too, because he let go of her. There was nothing for it but to put her arms over her head and hope for a soft place to fall. She staggered and folded up, while the dust of the grandfathers, free after thousands of years, escaped at last on the wind, streaming away across the mountain. It would have been nice if she'd heard thousands of little voices fading away as the cloud of dust was scattered to the wind, but to her regret she didn't. Reality so often fails when it comes to small, satisfying details, she thought. She could hear people now, and her sight was coming back. She could make out the ground in front of her as she carefully pushed herself up. The dry, dusty grass crackled softly, and someone walked into her view. There were boots, big sturdy boots with tight laces caked with sand and salt. And above the boots there were trousers, real, heavy, trouserman trousers. She said he would come, and he had, just in time, too. She stood up, and the shock hit her like a shovel. "'Well, well, well, your ladyship, here's a stroke of luck,' said the man, grinning at her. "'So the old Judy fetched up here, eh? Who'd have thought the old bugger could manage it? Didn't do him any good, I see, being as it's his hat I do see on that darky's head. What happened to the old fool? Ate him, did they? And never said no grace aforehand to, I have no doubt. I bet that made him wild.' Foxlip. Not the worst of the mutineers, but that didn't mean much because he had two pistols in his belt 
and they don't care who pulls the trigger. Most of the islanders were in the clearing. They must have led the men up here. Why shouldn't they? She'd been saying for weeks that her father would find her. Most of them had probably never seen a trouserman before. "'Where's your friend, Mr. Foxlip? Is Mr. Polgrave with you?' she asked, managing a smile. "'Right here, miss,' said a hoarse voice. She shuddered. "'Polgrave!' And where she could not see him, which was even worse. He'd sidled up behind her, as was his way, the sneaky little worm. "'And will we be joined by Mr. Cox?' she asked, trying to hold on to the smile. Foxlip looked around the little valley. He was counting people. She could see his lips moving. Im, I shot him, said Foxlip. Liar, she thought. You wouldn't dare. You're not that brave. You're not even that stupid. If you missed, he'd have cut your heart out. Good heavens, a couple of months ago, I wouldn't have been able to even think a sentence like that. How broad can horizons get? Well done you, she said. Her thoughts tumbled through her head. Two men with pistols and they'd fire them, too. If she said the wrong thing, someone would get killed. She had to get them away from here, get them away, and remind them that she was valuable to them. "'My father will pay you a great deal if you get me to Port Mercia, Mr. Foxlip,' she said. "'Oh, I dare say there will be a lot of paying, one way or another, yes, I dare say,' said Foxlip, looking round again. "'There's ways and ways, oh, yes.' "'So you're the Queen of the Savages, are you? "'One white girl all by yourself. "'Terrible shame. "'I bet you could do with a bit of civilised company, "'such as might be provided by a pair of gentlemen such as us. "'Well, I say us, but of course Mr. Polgrave here "'does indulge in the questionable habit "'of wiping his boogers on his sleeve, "'but bishops have been known to do worse.' "'And, later on, she thought, "'it could still have worked if it hadn't been for Ataba.' He'd seen the gods in the darkness underground, and now he was spinning with the holy memory. He was out of breath and confused, but he had seen the gods, and all uncertainty had been blown away with the dust of history. They were made of stone, indeed, but they had gleamed in their hidden home, and he was sure they had spoken to him, told him that everything he believed was true, and that in this new world he would be their prophet, delivered out of the darkness on the burning wings of certainty. And there were trouser men. The bringers of all that was bad. They were a disease that weakened the soul. They brought steel and beef and infernal devices, which made people lazy and stupid. But now the holy fire had filled him just in time. They all heard him scream ancient curses and march across the clearing with his knees clicking loudly. Daphne barely understood any of it. The words tumbled out on top of one another, fighting to be heard. Who knew what his blazing eyes were really seeing as he snatched a spear from a young man and waved it menacingly at Foxlip, who shot him dead. Chapter 11 Crimes and Punishments The crack of the pistol echoed around the mountain. It was even louder in Daphne's head. Ataba went over backward like a falling tree. Only Milo and Pilu know what's just happened, she thought. No one else here has even seen a gun before. There was a loud noise, and the old man fell over. I might just be able to stop everyone from being killed. Mao was crouched over the body of Ataba, halfway toward getting up. She waved at him frantically to stay down. Then Foxlip committed suicide. He didn't know it at the time, but that's how it started. He pulled out his other pistol and growled, Tell him not to move. First one who does, he's a dead darky. You tell him that right now. She stepped forward with her hands up. 
I know these men. They're Foxlip and Polgrave. They were crew on the Sweet's Judy. They kill people. They shot Mr. Wainsley and Mr. Plummer. They laughed about it. They... Pillow, tell them what a gun is. They are bad men, said Miller. Yes, they are. And they've got more pistols. Look, stuck in their belts. You mean the spark makers, said Mao, still crouched. She could see his muscles wound up to spring. Oh, dear, thought Daphne, what a time to have a good memory. There's no time to explain. They can point them at you and kill you better than any spear. And they will kill you, do you understand? And they probably won't kill me. I'd be worth too much. Keep away. This is between trouser people. But you pointed one at me. There's no time to explain, hissed Daphne. You're talking a good deal too much, Missy, said Foxlip. And just behind Daphne, Polgrave sniggered. She felt the barrel of a pistol pressed into the small of her back. "'Saw a fellow shot in a spine once, miss,' the man whispered. "'It stuck there, indeed it did. Funny thing was, he started dancing right there, legs going like mad and him screaming. Didn't fall over for ten minutes. Amazing thing, nature.' "'Stow that,' said Foxlip, watching the clearing nervously. The islanders had mostly slid away into the bushes, but those who remained did not look too happy. "'What did that silly old devil want to get yourself shot for?' Now they're all worked up. Pretty raggedy lot, though, said Polgrave. We can hang on till the others come. I told you to shut up. They don't know what to do now, Daphne thought. They are stupid and scared. The trouble is, they are stupid and scared with guns. And there's others coming. Emo made us smart, Mao said. Am I smarter than a stupid man with a gun? Yes, I think I am. Gentlemen, she said, why don't we deal with this like civilised people? "'Are you having a little laugh, Your Majesty?' said Foxlip. "'Get me to Port Mercia, and my father will give you gold and a pardon. "'Who's going to give you a better offer this day? "'Look at this from a mathematical point of view. "'You've got guns, yes, but how long can you stay awake? "'There's a lot more,' she forced the word out, "'darkies than you. "'Even if one man stays awake, he's only got two shots before his throat is cut. "'Of course, they might not start with the throat,' since they are, as you point out, savages, and not as civilised as you. You must have a boat here. You don't dare stay. But you're our hostage, said Polgrave. You might be mine. I just have to scream. You shouldn't have shot the priest. That old man was a priest, said Polgrave, looking panicky. It's bad luck to kill a priest. Not even ones, said Foxlip, and the bad luck was all his, eh? But they got these spells. They can shrink your head. When did they shrink yours? said Foxlip. Don't be such a damn fool. As for you, Princess, you're coming with us. Princess, she thought. That was just like the mutineers. They called her baby names all the time. She hated it. It made her flesh crawl. It was probably meant to. No, Mr. Foxlip, I'm not a princess, she said carefully, but you're coming with me all the same. Keep close. And have you lead us into a trap? It's near sunset. "'Do you want to be up here in the dark?' she held out her hand and added. "'And the rain, too?' A squall had blown in, and the first drops began to fall. "'The people here can see in the dark,' she went on, "'and they can move as silently as the wind. "'Their knives are so sharp that they can cut a man's—' "'Why is it happening like this?' Polgrave demanded of Foxlip. "'I thought you were smart. "'You said we'd get the best pickings. "'You told me, and now I'm telling you to shut up.' Foxlip turned to Daphne. All right, my lady. I'm not falling for that malarkey. We'll take you off this rock at first light. Might even get you as far as dear old Dad. 
but there'd better be gold at the end of it or else. No tricks, right? Yeah, we got four loaded pistols, Missy, said Polgrave, waving one at her, and they'll stop anything, you hear? They won't stop the fifth man, Mr. Polgrave. She rejoiced in the change in his expression as she turned to Foxlip. Tricks? For me? No, I want to get home. I don't know any tricks. Swear on your mother's life, said Foxlip. What? You always were a stuck-up kid on the duty. Swear it, like I said. Then I might even believe ya. Does he know about my mother, Daphne wondered, calm thoughts floating in a sea of fury. I think poor Captain Roberts did, and I told Cookie. But not even Cookie would gossip about that sort of thing to the likes of Foxlip. But no one is entitled to ask for an oath like that. Foxlip growled. Daphne had been silent too long for his liking. Cat got your tongue, he said. No, but it is an important swear. I had to think about it. I promise I won't try to run away. I won't tell you any lies, and I won't try to deceive you. Is that what you want? And you swear that on your mother's life, Foxlip insisted. Yes, I do. That's very handsome of you, said Foxlip. Don't you think so, Mr. Polgrave? But Polgrave was watching the dripping forest on either side of the path. There's things in there, he moaned. There's stuff creeping about. Lions and tigers and elephants, I shouldn't wonder, said Foxlip cheerfully. He raised his voice. But there's a hair trigger on this pistol, so if I even think I hear a sound out of place, Missy will be put to considerable embarrassment. One footfall and she's ready for the boneyard. As soon as Daphne and the two trousermen had rounded a bend in the track and were out of sight, Mao stepped forward. We could rush them. The rain's on our side, Pillow whispered. You heard the big one. I can't risk her being killed. She saved my life. Twice. I thought you saved her life. Yes, but the first time I saved her life, I saved mine too. Do you understand? If she hadn't been here, I'd have held the biggest rock I could find and gone into the dark current. One person is nothing. Two people are a nation. Pillow's forehead wrinkled in puzzlement. What are three people? A bigger nation. Let's catch up to them. Carefully. And she saved me from Lokaha a second time, he thought, as they set off again, silent as ghosts in the rain. He'd woken up, his mind full of silver fishes, and the old woman had told him. He'd been running to the white city under the sea, and then Daphne had been there, pulling him up faster than Lokaha could swim. Even the old woman had been impressed. The ghost girl had a plan, and she couldn't tell him what it was. All they could do, with their sticks and spears, was follow her. No, they didn't have to follow her. He knew where she was going. He stared at her, pale in the dusk, as she led the men down the sloping path to the place. Who would be in here now, Daphne wondered. She'd seen Mrs. Gurgle up at the cave because everyone who could walk had been up there. There were some sick people in the far huts, though. She would have to be careful. She lit some dry grass from the fire outside the hut and cautiously transferred the flame to one of the Judy's lamps. She did it very carefully, thinking about each movement, because she did not want to think about what she would be doing next. She had to keep herself in two parts. Even so, her hand shook. But a girl had a right to tremble a bit when two men were pointing guns at her. Do sit down, she said. The mats are not as bad as the ground, at least. Much obliged, said Polgrave, looking around the hut. It almost broke her heart. Once upon a time, some woman had taught the man his manners. But to thank her, he'd grown up to be a weasel, thief, and murderer. And now, when he was worried and ill at ease, an actual bit of politeness drifted up from the depths, like a pure, clear bubble from a swamp. It wasn't going to make things any easier. Foxlip just grunted, 
and sat down with his back to the inner wall, which was solid rock. This is a trap, right? he said. No, you asked me to swear on my mother's life, said Daphne coldly, and thought, and that was a sin. Even if you have no God at all, that was a sin. Some things are a sin all by themselves. And I'm going to murder you, and that is a mortal sin too, but it won't look like murder. She said, Would you like some beer? Beer, said Foxlip. You mean real beer? Well, it's like beer. It's the demon drink, anyway. I've always got some freshly made. You make it, but you're a knob, said Polgrave. Perhaps I make knobby beer, said Daphne. Sometimes you have to do what needs doing. Do you want some? She'll poison us, said Polgrave. It's all a trick. We'll have some beer, princess, said Foxlip, but we'll watch you drink it first, cause we were not born yesterday. He gave her an unpleasant wink, full of guile and mischief and with no humour in it at all. Yeah, you look after us, missy, and we'll look after you when Coxy's cannibal chums come for a picnic, said Polgrave. She heard Foxlip hissing at him for this as she stepped outside, but she'd never for one minute believed that they intended to rescue her. And Cox had found the raiders, had he? Who should she feel sorry for? She went next door to the beer hut and took three bubbling shells of beer off the shelf, taking care to brush all the dead flies off. What I am about to do won't be murder, she told herself. Murder is a sin. It won't be murder. Foxlip would make sure she drank some beer first, to prove it wasn't poisoned and up until now she had never drunk much, only a tiny amount when she had been experimenting with a new recipe. Just one drop of beer would turn you into a madman, her grandmother had said. It made you defile yourself and neglect your children and break up families, among quite a lot of other things. But this was her beer, after all. It hadn't been made in a factory somewhere, with who knew what in it. It was just made of good, honest poison. She came back, balancing three wide, shallow clay bowls that she put down on the floor between the mats. "'Well, now, you've got a lovely bunch of coconuts,' said Foxlip, in his disgustingly unfriendly, friendly way. "'But I'll tell you what, Missy, you'll mix the beer up so's we all get the same, right?' Daphne shrugged, and did as he said, with both men watching closely. "'Looks like horse piss,' said Polgrave. "'Well, horse piss ain't too bad,' said Foxlip. He picked up the bowl in front of him, looked at the one in front of Daphne, hesitated for a moment, and then grinned his unpleasant grin. I reckon you're too smart to put poison in your bowl and expect me to be daft enough to swap em over, he said. Drink up, princess. Yeah, down a little red lane, said Polgrave. There it was again, another tiny arrow into her heart. Her own mother had said that to her when she wouldn't eat her broccoli. The memory stung. The same beer is in every bowl. You made me swear, she said. I said drink up. Daphne spat into her bowl and began to sing the beer song. The island version, not her own. Bar-bar black sheep just wouldn't work now. So she sang the song of the four brothers, and because most of her mind was taken up with that, a smaller part took the opportunity to remind her, Air is the planet Jupiter, which we believe to be made of gases. Isn't that a coincidence? And she faltered a moment before recovering herself, because some tiny part of her mind was worrying her with what she was about to do. There was a stunned silence when she finished, and then Foxlip said, what the hell was all that about? You gobbed in your drink. Daphne tipped up the bowl and took a good swig. It was a little more nutty than usual. She paused to feel it bubbling down and saw them still staring. You have to spit in the bowl and then sing the beer song. She burped and put a hand over her mouth. Pardon me, I can teach it to you, or you can just hum along. Please, it is an ancient custom. 
I'm not singing no pagan mumbo-jumbo, said Foxlip, and he snatched up his own bowl and took a long swig while Daphne tried not to scream. Polgrave hadn't touched his beer. He was still suspicious. His beady little eyes flicked from his fellow mutineer to Daphne and back again. Foxlip put down his bowl and belched. Well, it's a long time since... Silence exploded. Polgrave reached for his pistols, but Daphne was already moving. Her bowl hit him on the nose with a crunch. The man screamed and went over backward, and Daphne snatched his pistols from the floor. She tried to think and not think at the same time. Don't think about the man you just killed. It was an execution. Think about the man you may have to kill, but I can't prove he's a murderer. He didn't kill Ataba. She fumbled with a pistol as Polgrave, spitting blood, tried to get up. The gun was heavier than it looked, and she choked back a curse, courtesy of the sweet Judy's great barrel of swearing, as clumsy fingers disobeyed her. Finally, she pulled the hammer back, just as Captain Roberts had taught her. It clicked twice, what Cookie called the two-pound noise. When she'd asked him why, he'd said, "'Because when a man is that in the dark, he loses two pounds of... weight quickly.' It certainly made Polgrave go very quiet. "'I will fire,' she lied. "'Don't move. Good. Now, listen to me. I want you to go away. You didn't kill anyone here. Go away, right away. If I see you again, I will... Well, you will regret it. I'm letting you go because you had a mother. Someone actually loved you once and tried to teach you manners. You won't understand that at all. Now get up and get out. Get out, get out and run far away. Quickly now. Trying to run and crouch at the same time, holding his hand over his ruined nose, dribbling strings of snot and blood, and certainly not looking back, Polgrave scuttled into the sunset like a crab running for the safety of the surf. Daphne sat down, still holding the pistol in front of her, and waited until the hut stopped spinning. She looked at the silent foxlip, who hadn't moved at all. "'Why did you have to be so... so stupid?' she said, prodding him with the pistol. "'Why did you kill an old man who was shaking a stick at you? "'You shoot at people without a thought, and you call them savages. "'Why are you so stupid as to think I was stupid? "'Why didn't you listen to me? "'I told you we sing the beer song. "'Would it have hurt to hum along? "'But no, you knew better because they are savages. "'And now you are dead, with a stupid little smile on your stupid face. "'You needn't have died, but you didn't listen. "'Well, you've got just enough time to listen now, Mr. Stupid. The thing is, the beer is made from a very poisonous plant. It paralyzes you all at once. But there's some chemical in human spit, you see, and if you spit into the beer, and then sing the beer song, it turns the poison into something harmless, with a lovely nutty flavor that, incidentally, I have improved very considerably, everyone says. It takes a little less than five minutes to make the beer safe, which is just long enough to sing the official beer song, but Bar Bar Black Sheep, sung about sixteen times, also works, you see. "'because it's not the song that matters, you see. "'It's the waiting. "'I worked that out using scientific think-kink,' she burped. "'Sorry, I mean thinking.' "'She stopped to throw up the beer, "'and then, by the feel of it, "'to throw up everything she'd eaten in the last year. "'And it could have been such a lovely evening,' she said. "'Do you know what this island is? "'Have you any idea what this island is? "'Of course you don't, because you're so stupid and dead, "'and I'm a murderer.' "'She burst into tears.' which were large and sticky, and began to argue with herself. Look, they were mutineers. If they were in a court of law, they'd be hung. Hanged, not hung. But that's the point of having courts. It's to stop people murdering other people just because they think they deserve it. There's a judge and jury, and if they were found guilty, they would be hanged by the hangman, neatly and properly. 
he'd have his breakfast first, very calmly, and perhaps say a prayer. He would hang them calmly and without anger, because at that moment he would be the law. That's how it works. But everyone saw him shoot a taba. Correct. So everyone should have decided what to do. How could they? They didn't know what I know. And you know what they're like. They had four pistols between them. If I hadn't got them out of the way, they'd have shot other people. They were talking about taking over the island. Yes. What you did was murder, even so. What about the hangman? Doesn't he do murder, then? No, because enough people say it isn't. That's what a courtroom is for. It's where the law happens. And that makes it right. Didn't God say, Thou shalt not kill? Yes, but after that it got complicated. There was movement in the doorway, and her hand raised the pistol. Then her brain lowered it. Good, said Mao. I do not want to be shot a second time. Remember? The tears started again. I'm sorry about that. I thought you were... I thought you were a savage, Daphne managed. What's a savage? She pointed the pistol toward Foxlip. Someone like him. He's dead. I'm sorry. He insisted on drinking his beer. We saw the other one run off toward the low forest. He was bleeding and snorting like a sick pig. He wouldn't drink his beer, Daphne sobbed. I'm sorry. I brought Lokaha here. Mao's eyes gleamed. No, they brought him, and you sent him away full, he said. More? are going to come. They talked about it, Daphne managed. Mao said nothing, but put an arm around her. Tomorrow I want a trial, she said. What's a trial? said Mao. He waited for a while, but the only reply was a snore. He sat with her, watching the eastern sky darken. Then he carefully settled her down on her mat, hoisted the rigid body of Foxlip over his shoulder, and went down to the beach. The unknown woman watched him load the body into a canoe and paddle out into the ocean, where Foxlip went over the side with a lump of coral tied to his foot, to be eaten by whatever was hungry enough to eat carrion. She saw him return and go back up the mountain, where Milo and Kale had been watching over the body of Ataba, so that he would not become a ghost. In the morning they followed Mao down to the beach, where the unknown woman and a few others joined them. The sun was rising now, and Mao was not surprised to see the grey shadow drifting beside him. At one point, Milo walked through it without noticing. Two more deaths, hermit crab, said Lokaha. Do they make you happy, growled Mao. Then send this priest to the perfect world. How can you ask that little hermit crab who does not believe? Because he did, and he cared which is more than his gods did. No bargains, Mao, even for another. At least I'm trying, Mao yelled. Everyone stared at him. The shadow faded. On the edge of the reef, above the dark current, Mao tied broken coral to the old man and watched him sink beyond the reach of sharks. "'He was a good man!' he shouted to the sky. "'He deserved better gods!' Down in the steams of the low forest, someone shivered. It had not been a good night for Arthur Septimus Polgrave, who would have been known to his friends, if he'd had any friends, as Septic. He knew he was dying, he just knew it. He must be. There couldn't be a single thing in this jungle that hadn't tried to bite, peck, or sting him during the last dark, soupy hour. There were spiders, giant, horrible things, waiting at nose height in every path. There were the insects, everyone armed by the feel of it with red-hot needles. Things had bitten his ears and climbed up his trousers. Things had trodden on him. In the middle of the night, something horrible had flopped down from the trees, not to his head, which it had tried to unscrew. As soon as he could see clearly, 
he would take his chances and make a run for the boat and a getaway. All in all, he thought, as he pulled something with far too many legs out of his ear, things were about as bad as they could get. There was a rustling in the tree above him, and he looked up just as a well-fed grandfather bird threw up in time for breakfast, and found that he was wrong. Later that morning, Daphne marched up to Pillow with the log of the sweet Judy in her hand, and said, "'I want a fair trial.' "'That's good,' said Pillow. "'We're going to look at the new cave. Are you going to come?' Most of the population were gathered around him. News of the gods had got around fast. "'You don't know what a trial is, do you?' "'Er, uh, no,' said Pillow. "'It's where you decide if someone has done something wrong, and if they should be punished.' "'Well, you punish that trouserman,' said Pillow cheerfully. "'He killed a Taba. He was a pirate.' "'Er, uh, yes. But the question is, should I have done it? I had no authority to kill him.' Milo loomed behind his brother, bent down, and whispered to him. "'Ah, yes,' said Pillow. "'My brother reminds me of the time we were in Port Mercia, and a navy man had been found thieving, and they tied him to the mast and beat him with some leather thing. Is this what we're talking about? I think we've got some leather.' Daphne shuddered. "'Er, uh, no, thank you, but, er, uh, don't you ever have crime on the islands?' It took some time to get the idea settled in Pillow's head, and then he said, "'I've got it! You want us to tell you that you didn't do a bad thing, yes?' "'The ghost girl is saying that there must be rules and there must be reasons,' said Mao, right behind Daphne. She hadn't even known he was there. "'Yes, but you're not to say I did a good thing just because you like me,' she added. "'Well, we didn't like him,' said Pillu. "'He killed a Taba.' "'I think I see what she means,' said Mao. "'Let's try it. It sounds... interesting.' And so the nation had its first court. There was no question of judge and jury. Everyone sat around in a circle, children too and there was Mao sitting in the circle. No one was more important than anyone else, and there was Mao sitting in the circle just like everybody else. Everyone should make up their own mind, and there was Mao sitting in the circle. Not big, not even tattooed, not shouting orders, but somehow being slightly more there than anyone else. And he had the cap. He was the captain. Daphne had heard some of the newcomers talking about him. They used a kind of code about the poor boy, and how hard it must be, and somewhere in it all there was, unspoken yet still present, the suggestion that he wasn't old enough to be a chief, and around that point either Milo or Carle turned up like an eclipse of the sun, and the conversation turned to fishing or babies. And every day Mao was a little older, and still chief. Pilu was in charge of the court. It was the sort of thing he was born for, but he did need some help. We must have a prosecutor, Daphne explained. That's someone who thinks what I did was wrong, and a defender who says what I did was right. Then I'll be the defender, said Pillow cheerfully. And the prosecutor, said Daphne. That would be you. Me? I have to be someone else. But everyone knows that man killed Ataba. We saw him, said Pillow. Look, hasn't there ever been a killing in these islands? Uh, sometimes too much beer, a fight over women, such things as these, very sad. There is a story— a very old story about two brothers who fought. One killed the other, but in the battle it could have been otherwise, and the other one dead. The killer fled, knowing the punishment and taking it upon himself. Was the punishment awful? He would be sent far away from the islands, far from his people, from his family, never to walk in the steps of his ancestors, never to sing a death chant for his father, never to hear the songs of his childhood, never again to smell the sweet water of home. He built a canoe and sailed in new seas far away, where men are baked into different colours, and for half of every year trees die. He lived for many lifetimes and saw many things, 
but one day he found a place that was best of all, because it was the island of his childhood, and he stepped onto the shore and died, happily, because he was home again. Then Emo made the brothers into stars and put them in the sky, so that we shall remember the brother who sailed so far away that he came back again. Oh, my word, thought Daphne, as the picture of the dying brother faded in her mind. That is so sad. And it's a story about something else, about sailing so far that you come back again. I must go back into that cave. But the ghost girl is already banished, Mao pointed out. The wave banished her to us. And so there had to be even more discussion. Half an hour later, matters were not much improved. The whole population of the island sat in a circle around Daphne, trying to be helpful, trying to understand as the trial went on. "'You say they were bad trousermen,' said Mao. "'Yes, the worst kind,' said Daphne. "'Murderers and bullies. You say you walk in the shadow of Lokaha, but they walked in his loincloth when he has not bathed for many months.' That got a laugh. She probably said it wrong. "'And how did they walk in Lokaha's loincloth?' said Pillu and got a slightly smaller laugh to his obvious disappointment. "'That's the wrong question,' said Mao. The laughter stopped. He went on. "'You say you told them about the beer song, and they didn't listen. It is not your fault the man was a fool, is it?' "'Yes, but you see it was a trick,' Daphne said. "'I knew they wouldn't take any notice.' "'Why would they not listen?' "'Because—' She hesitated, but there was no way of avoiding it. "'I'd better tell you everything,' she said. "'I want to tell you everything.' You should know what happened on the sweet Judy. You should know about the dolphins and the butterfly and the man in the canoe. And while the circle listened with open mouths, she told them what she had seen, what Cookie had told her, and what poor Captain Roberts had written in the ship's log. She told them about First Mate Cox and the mutiny and the man in the canoe, who had been brown and, like Mrs. Gurgle, looked as if he'd been made out of old leather. The sweet Judy had caught up with him out among the islands, where he had been paddling a small canoe very industriously toward the horizon. According to First Mate Cox, the man made a rude gesture. Foxlip and Polgrave backed him up on that, but in his log the captain, who had spoken to them all separately, made a point of noting that they weren't clear about what the gesture was. Cox had shot at the man and had hit him. Foxlip fired too. Daphne remembered him laughing. Polgrave was the last to fire, and that was just like him. He was the kind of weasel who would kick a corpse because it was unlikely to fight back. Polgrave giggled all the time and never took his eyes off Daphne when she was on deck, but he was probably smarter than Foxlip, although once you got past the swaggering and the bullying, there were probably lobsters who were smarter than Foxlip. The two of them tended to hang around with cocks in a way that was hard to understand until you found out that there are fish that swim alongside a shark, or even in its mouth, where they are safe from other fish and never get eaten. Nobody knows what's in it for the shark. Maybe it doesn't notice, or is saving them up for a secret midnight snack. Of course, Cox was not like a shark. He was worse. Sharks are just eating machines. They don't have a choice. First Mate Cox had a choice, every day, and had chosen to be First Mate Cox. And that was a strange choice, because if evil was a disease, then First Mate Cox would have been in an isolation ward on a bleak island somewhere, and even then, bunnies nibbling at the seaweed would start to fight one another. Cox was, in fact, contagious. Where his shadow fell, old friendships snapped and little wars broke out. Milk soured. Weevils fled from every stale ship's biscuit, and rats queued up to jump into the sea. At least, that was how Cookie had put it, although he was given to mild exaggeration. 
and Cox grinned. It wasn't the nasty, itchy little grin of Polgrave, which made you want to wash your hands after seeing it. It was the grin of a man who was happy in his work. He'd come on board at Port Advent after five of the crew didn't come back from shore leave. That often happened, the cook told Daphne. A captain who strictly forbade card games, whistling, alcohol and swearing found crew hard to keep at any price. It was a terrible thing, said Cookie, to see religion get such a hold on a decent soul. But because Roberts was a decent soul and a good captain, a lot of the crew stayed with him voyage after voyage, even though stopping sailors from swearing was a terrible thing to do. They got around it by sticking an old barrel of water right down in the scuppers and swearing into it when it all got too much. Try as she might, Daphne couldn't make out all the words, but at the end of a difficult day the water in the barrel was hot enough to wash with. Everyone knew about Cox. You didn't hire first mate Cox. He turned up. If you didn't need a first mate because you already had one, then the one you had was suddenly very keen indeed on being a second mate once again. Yes, indeed, much obliged. And if you were an innocent man, you accepted all the glowing references of the other captains, without wondering why they would be so happy to see Cox on someone else's ship. But Cookie said that in his opinion Roberts knew all about Cox, and had been filled with missionary zeal at the chance to save such a big ripe sinner from the pit of damnation. And maybe Cox, when he found himself working for a captain who held compulsory prayer meetings three times a day, was filled with a different kind of zeal, which would have been black with flames around the edges. Evil likes company, Cookie said. Amazingly, Cox went to the services willingly and joined in and paid attention. Those who knew about him walked carefully. Cox ate and drank mischief, and if you couldn't work out what he was up to, then it was the really dark stuff. When he had nothing else to do, Cox shot at things. Birds, flying fish, monkeys, anything. One day a large blue butterfly, blown from one of the islands, landed on the deck. Cox shot it so neatly there were just two wings left, and then he gave Daphne a wink, as if he'd done something clever. She'd had a cousin like that, Botany was his name, who never left a frog unsquashed, a kitten unkicked, or a spider unflattened. In the end, she'd accidentally broken two of his fingers under the nursery rocking horse, told him she'd put wasps down his trousers next time if he didn't mend his ways, and then burst into tears when people came running. You didn't come from a family of ancient fighters like hers without at least a pinch of ruthlessness. Sadly, there had been no one there to set Cox's feet on the right path and his fingers in plaster. But, some of the crew whispered, it seemed that he'd changed. He still shot at things, but he was always in the front row for the services, watching old Roberts like a botanist watching a rare beetle. It was as if Cox was fascinated by the captain. As for Captain Roberts... He might have wanted to save Cox's soul from the fires of perdition, but he hated the man himself and didn't mind showing it. This did not sit well with Cox, but shooting captains always caused a bit too much of a stir, so, Cookie said, he must have decided to beat the captain on the man's own ground, or water, destroying him from the inside. Cox shot things because they were alive, but to him that was just killing time. He had greater ambitions for the captain. He wanted to shoot him in the faith. It began with Cox sitting up straight during the prayer meetings and shouting hallelujah or amen every time the captain finished a sentence and clapping loudly. Or he'd ask puzzled questions like, What do they feed the lions and tigers with in the ark, sir? And 
Where did all the water go? Then there was the day when he asked Cookie to try to make a meal for the whole crew out of five loaves and two fishes. Then, when the captain said the story was not meant to be taken literally, Cox gave him a smart salute and said, Then what is, Captain? It started to get bad. The captain got humpty. Crew, who'd served with him for a long time, said he was a decent man and a good captain, and they'd never seen him get humpty before. Everyone suffered under a humpty captain, who'd find fault with everything and turn every day into a chore. Daphne spent a lot of time in her cabin. And then there was the parrot. No one was ever sure who taught the bird its first swear word, although the wobbling finger of suspicion pointed at Cox, but by then the whole crew was ill at ease. Cox had his supporters, and the captain had staunch allies of his own. Fights broke out, and things, small things, were getting stolen. That was terrible, according to Cookie. Nothing broke up a crew like the thought that a man had to watch his possessions all the time. Dooms and reckonings would be upon them all, he forecasted. Probably more dooms than reckonings, he added. And the next day, Cox shot the old man in the canoe. Daphne would like to report that every sailor in the crew was angry because the old man had been shot, and in a way it was true, but many of the men were less concerned about the sanctity of souls than they were about the possibility that the old man had relatives nearby with fast canoes, sharp spears, and an unwillingness to listen to explanations. And there were even a few who held that one old man more or less didn't matter, but Cox and his cronies had been shooting at dolphins too, and that was cruel and unlucky. In the end there was a war, and so much bad blood had been bubbling that there seemed to Daphne to be more than two sides. She sat it out in her cabin, seated on a small barrel of gunpowder with a loaded pistol in her hand. The captain had told her that if Cox's men won, she should fire the pistol into the barrel to save her honour, though she was uncertain how much a saved honour would be worth when it was falling out of the sky in tiny pieces along with the rest of the cabin. Fortunately, she did not have to find out, because Captain Roberts ended the mutiny by detaching one of the sweet Judy's swivel guns and aiming it at the mutineers. The gun was intended for firing lots of small lead balls at any pirates who might try to board the ship. It was not intended to be a hand cannon, and if he had fired the thing, the recoil would probably have thrown him into the air, but everyone in front of it would have died of terminal perforations. There was a fury about him that even Cox took note of, Cookie had told her. The captain had the look in his eye of the Almighty confronting a particularly wicked city, and maybe Cox was just sane enough to recognise that he was someone who might be even madder than he was, at least for the time it took to turn Cox and those around him into much smaller lumps. Or, Cookie said, the captain may have been about to commit wild murder right up until he realised that this was what Cox wanted, and the devil of a man would drag the captain's soul to hell along with his own. But the captain didn't fire the gun, said Cookie. He laid it on the deck. He straightened up with his arms folded and a grim little smile on his face, and Cox just stood there looking puzzled, and then every single loyal crewman pointed a pistol at his head. The steam got knocked out of the mutiny. Cox and his chums were herded into the ship's boat with food, water, and a compass. And then, of course, there was the matter of the guns. The mutineers still had friends among the crew, who said that leaving them in uncertain waters without weapons was a death sentence. In the end, the guns were left for them on a little island a mile away, despite Captain Roberts declaring that, in his opinion, any pirate or slaver who ran into Coxney's men would have a new captain in very short order indeed. He ordered the swivel guns primed and ready day and night, 
and said that the boat would be fired on instantly if it was ever seen again. The boat was set adrift and sailed, her crew silent and worried, except for Polgrave and Foxlip, who jeered and spat. That was because they were too dumb to realise, said Cookie, that they were heading off into bad waters with a murderous madman in command. The Judy never really recovered, but she kept on course. People didn't talk much, and kept to themselves when they were off watch. She wasn't a happy ship at all. Five men had previously jumped ship at Port Henry, and so without the mutineers there weren't enough men to crew the ship properly when the wave came. And that was the story Daphne told. She tried to be honest, and where she'd relied on Cookie's rather excitable stories, she said so. She wished she had Pilu's talent. He could make tripping over a stone sound like a desperate adventure. There was silence when she finished. Most people turned to look at Pilu. She'd done her best in a foreign language, but she'd seen the puzzled looks. What Pilo gave them was the story all over again, but with acting, too. She could make out the character of Captain Roberts, heavy and pompous, and surely the one who sidled around was Polgrave, and the one who stamped and roared was Cox. They shouted at one another all the time, while Pilo's fingers popped like pistols, and somehow, in the middle of the air, the story unfolded. A certain extra touch of slightly mad realism was added by the parrot, who danced madly in the top of a coconut palm and shouted things like, "'What about Darwin, then? What?' Pilou's translation lagged behind Daphne's account, but when he was about to deal with the old man's shooting, he stopped for guidance. He killed a man in a canoe because he was not a trouser man. She was ready for this. No. The man I killed, the dead man, would have done that, but I think Cox just killed the old man because he couldn't see anything else to shoot at. Uh, my English is no so good, Peter began. I'm sorry to say you heard me correctly. He kills for low kaha and adds glory like the raiders? No, just because he wants to. Pilu looked at her as if this was going to be a hard one to get across. It was. From the sound of it, no one thought he was making sense. He went on doggedly for a few more sentences and turned to Daphne. Not dolphins, he said. No sailor would kill a dolphin, you must be wrong. No, he really did. But that is killing a soul, said Pilu. When we die we become dolphins, until it is time to be born again. Who would kill a dolphin? Tears of puzzlement and anger raced down his face. I'm sorry, Cox would, and Foxlip shot at it too. Why? To be like Cox, I think, to seem like a big man. Big man? Like the Ramora fish. Er, uh, you call them suckfish. They swim with the sharks. Perhaps they like to think they are sharks. Not even the raiders would do this, and, and they worship Lokaha. It is beyond belief. I saw them. And poor Captain Roberts wrote it down in the ship's log. I can show you. Too late. She remembered that Pilu didn't so much read as recognise writing when it was pointed out to him. His look now was a plea for help. So she stood close to him and found the right place. Once again, Cox and his cronies have been discharging their pistols at the dolphins, against all decency and the common laws of the sea. May God forgive him, because no righteous sailor will. Indeed, I suspect that in this case even the Almighty will find his mercy overly strained. She read it aloud. In the circle, people were getting restless. There was a lot of loud whispering that she couldn't understand, and it looked as if some sort of agreement was being arrived at. The nods and whispers ran around the circle of people in opposite directions until they met at Mao, who cracked a thin smile. 
These were men who would shoot a brown man for no reason, he said, and they would shoot dolphins, which even trouser men respect. You could see inside their heads, ghost girl. Isn't that right? You could see how they thought. Daphne couldn't look at his face. Yes, she said. Savages, we are to them, some sort of animal. Darkies. Yes, she still did not dare to look up, in case she met his gaze. She'd pulled the trigger, she remembered, on that first day, and he had thanked her for the gift of fire. When the ghost girl first met me, Mao began. Oh, no, he's not going to tell them, is he, she thought. Surely he won't. But that little smile of his, that's the smile he smiles when he's really angry. She gave me food, Mao went on, and later she gave me a gun to help me light a fire, even though she was far from home and frightened. She was thoughtful enough, too, to take out the little ball that flies and kills, so that I would come to no harm. And she invited me into the sweet Judy and gave me wonderful lobster-flavoured cakes. You all know the ghost girl. She looked up. Everyone was staring at her. Now Mao stood up and walked into the centre of the circle. These men were different, he said, and the ghost girl knew how their minds worked. They would not sing the beer song because they thought we were a sort of animal, and they were too proud and great to sing an animal's song. She knew this, he looked around the circle. The ghost girl thinks she killed a man, did she? You must decide. Daphne tried to make out what was said next, but people all started talking at once. And because everyone was talking at once, everyone started talking louder. But something was happening. Little conversations got bigger, and then were picked up and rolled from tongue to tongue around the circle. Whatever the result was going to be, she thought, it probably was not going to be one simple word. Then Pillu wandered around the circle, hunkering down here and there, joining in for a little while, and then strolling on to another point and doing the same thing again. No one stuck up their hands, and there was no voting, but she thought, I wonder if it was like this in ancient Athens. This is pure democracy. People don't just get a vote. They have a say. And now it was settling down. Pillu got up from his last conversation and walked back to the centre of the ring. He nodded to Mao and started to speak. A man who will kill a priest, or kill a man for the pleasure of seeing him die, or kill a dolphin, this one got a big groan from the circle, could not be a man at all. It must have been an evil demon haunting the shell of a man, they say. The ghost girl could not have killed him because he was already dead. Mao cupped his hands over his mouth. Is this what you think? There was a roar of agreement. Good. He clapped his hands together and raised his voice. We've still got to finish the pig fence, everyone, and we still need timber from the Judy, and the fish trap is not going to build itself. The circle rose and became a criss-crossing of hurrying people. No one had banged a table with a wooden hammer or worn a robe. They had just done a thing that needed doing without much fuss, and now, well, there was the pig fence to repair. Is this what you wanted? asked Mao, suddenly beside her. Sorry? What? She hadn't even seen him approaching. Oh, uh, yes, thank you. That was a very good uh, judgment, she said. And you? I think they have decided, and I think it is settled, said Mao briskly. The man brought Lokaha here, and his pistols serve him. But Lokaha is no one's servant. <laughs>